0: Do 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 do.
1: This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. On April 4th, Chicago made history again when voters, for the first time, elected consecutive African American mayors with Brandon Johnson defeating Paul Vallis. Vallis had won the general election, with Johnson coming in a distant second place. The slim victory in the runoff election by Johnson was unexpected by many, as polls had consistently shown that Paul Vallis was the favorite. Vallis also had more experience in Chicago city governance. His campaign in the runoff vote was funded far more than Johnson's, and Vallis had obtained key endorsements from the Fraternal Order of Police and big-name leading Democrats like U.S. Senator Dick Durbin former Congressman Bobby Rush, who is an ex-Black Panther, and Obama Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan. Around the country, many saw Brandon Johnson's electoral victory as a victory for progressivism, not just in Chicago, but within the Democratic Party uh, nationally, a potential sign that the party was actually finally moving back toward the left after over a half-century of centrist and right-leaning neoliberalism. Johnson stood for teachers as he was an organizer within the Chicago Teachers Union. Meanwhile, Vallis and former Education Secretary Duncan have been key in spreading school privatization, supporting an expansion of charter and military schools. But can the newly elected Mayor Johnson fulfill his campaign promises of approaching policing in a way that is very different from past mayors while addressing the city's budgetary problems by seeking more resources and revenue from corporations and the wealthiest. So-called progressives have failed to come through in the past, not due to any fault of their own, but as our upcoming guest explains, because of the power of capital backed up by the force of the police. And I would suggest with the stenography of the local media and press, While this may seem as a victory for progressivism, counterintuitively, it may be time for even more organizing, more actions, more taking to the streets in order for Johnson's progressive platform to succeed. We will look back at Brandon Johnson's victory and forward to the possibilities of a far more progressive Chicago in a few minutes when we speak with historian Kevin A young who wrote the jacobin article brandon johnson won in chicago now his movement will have to beat capital strikes which argues that brandon johnson's mayoral victory is a first step toward transforming the deeply unequal city of chicago if he's going to undertake radical reform efforts in chicago johnson needs protests and strikes to fend off the inevitable capitalist attacks Kevin teaches history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is co-author of Levers of Power, How the 1% Rules and What the 99% Can Do About It, which analyzes the roots of capitalist political power and how progressive social movements have sometimes successfully changed policy in the United States. He is also author of the forthcoming book, Abolishing Fossil Fuels, Lessons from Movements That Won, and I cannot wait for that book to come out. It's supposed to come out next year. It looks really fantastic. Kevin's main research and teaching interests are in modern Latin America. His 2017 book, Blood of the Earth, Resource Nationalism, Revolution, and Empire in Bolivia, traced Bolivian struggles over mineral and fossil fuel resources in the 20th century. He's also the editor of Making the Revolution, Histories of the Latin American Left, which challenges stereotypes of the 20th century left as blind to the complexities of racial, gender, and national identities. He's the co-author, or co-editor, I should say, of the 2022 work Trump and the Deeper Crisis, which is a collection examining the roots, impacts, and future prospects of Trumpism, as well as the possibilities for combating it. His other research examines social movements, coalitions, and political power in the Andes, Central America, and the United States. And I'm going to want to ask him a question about the Trump book and how it relates to Brandon Johnson in a moment. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing
2: as Will Ippen. Will, how has your week gone so far? Uh, busy, busy, but uh, pretty good. Uh, weather like we have today sweetens the deal for sure.
1: That was really weird. It was supposed to be like upper 30s this morning. I looked at my computer at home. It said it was 45 degrees. I stepped outside. It feels like it's 70.
2: Yeah, it was one of those days where, uh, it's like or yesterday, it was cold during the day. and got warmer overnight. A lot warmer, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. I was like ready for like snowfall almost when I stepped outside, and
1: all of a sudden I was sweating like crazy. Last night at Office Hours, by the way, uh, Daniel from Jackson, Mississippi joined us, and uh, he's just kind of traveling around the country via Amtrak right now, and it is absolutely amazing talking to him. A really intelligent, bright, funny, just wonderful human being, but his stories about what it's like in Jackson, Mississippi right now are just god-awful. Yesterday's producer, Dan Hill, who works with people who were just released from jail, and is the genius behind the comic book 50 Flip Experiment, which you can find out more about at 50FlipExperiment.com Dan will no longer be a regular weekly producer here on This Is Hell, however he will fill in as needed But, without Dan, as well as Sebastian Voper, Lindsey Gorey, and Alexander Jerry we would not have been able to continue posting shows and providing content while I was hospital, uh, hospitalized last year with Life-threatening sepsis And a months-long recuperation that followed With Seb moving out of state Alex needing to spend more time With his family And Lindsay moving on to other opportunities Dan was very important Integral, if you will In our transition to a new staff Which now includes Will Ippen And our newest producer, Dan Kugler. So thanks to Dan Hill Who we will be hearing from In the future As he has agreed to fill in in a pinch Just as Alex and Richard Norwood does Thanks to everyone who works here on This Is Hell. Without you all, this show simply would not exist. And you can show, everybody can show uh, their appreciation for all their hard work by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we will share with you what we are doing on a very special Patreon podcast later this week uh, Will please remind us what is this week's question from Helen thank you for all of the work that you are doing in this crazy transition period that we are going through with new producers
2: hey it's fun learning how the sausage is made Chuck. Uh, <laughs> really is it it is yeah it's, I, I like problem solving <laughs> all right. um, uh, quick shout out to Dan and Lindsay who trained me up to get ready for this so quickly uh, really appreciate yeah, appreciate it you. and you know, best of luck uh, in, in your future endeavors and hope to see you soon yeah um, our question from hell is Where are you conducting your secret war?
1: Where are you conducting your secret war? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winner beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio Or during this show, you can email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com. As always, we will be announcing the winner at the end of this week's show, and that's the end of today's show, following the past inside the present this week with historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who offers the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Will, what is Seb talking about today?
2: Seb returned to Russia one last time Looking at what happened in the country After the collapse of communism Spoiler warning It was great for like 10 people (laughs) And very much not great for anyone else Exactly but those 10 people Awesome
1: Uh, So uh, also coming up What the surprise election of Brandon Johnson As Chicago's new mayor Means not only for progressivism here in the city But potentially What it means nationally will will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell we'll tell you who our guests are on next week's shows and unbelievably for the first time in months we actually have all of our guests confirmed for next week
0: manufacturing descent since 1996 this is hell live from
1: the massively and increasingly unequal city of chicago this Is hell And there are high hopes here in Chicago And not only because it's 420 But because a progressive reformer And organizer from a militant labor union Has been elected mayor Something nobody would have ever imagined However, not only in Chicago But across the United States There's a long history of African American mayors Who've tried to bring economic development To black communities But were unable to do so Due to the power of capital here to join us and help us have a better understanding of those unfulfilled promises and what forces made certain those promises went unfulfilled. Historian Kevin A. Young wrote the Jacobin article Brandon Johnson won in Chicago. Now his movement will have to beat capital strikes. Kevin teaches history at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Kevin, welcome to This Is how.
0: Thank you, Chuck. Good morning. Good morning to you and to Will.
1: Thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, So you write that Brandon Johnson's shocking victory in Chicago's April 4th mayoral election has sparked intense reactions across the spectrum. Before I even get into your writing, I want to ask you something related to your book uh, about Trump. You you were a co-editor of the 2022 work Trump and the Deeper Crisis, which is a collection examining the roots, impact and uh, future prospects of Trumpism, as well as the possibilities for combating it. Do you think trumpism or anti-trumpism or the presidency of donald trump or even the presence of donald trump uh, do you think any of that had any impact whatsoever on the mayoral election in chicago or are these two very disparate and different things uh
0: well i think there is a connection and you know it's it's unclear what's going to happen with Trump himself, you know, whether he winds up in jail, as he should be, uh, or, uh, or runs for president, maybe he's even going to win the presidency in 2024. We don't know. Uh, but Trumpism as, as a political phenomenon is, is definitely here to stay. And we see this clearly since the 2020 election the Republican Party has really doubled down on the core elements of Trumpism, the demagoguery, the xenophobia, the scapegoating of vulnerable groups in society. Uh, All of these things, the Republican Party, rather than uh, using the 2020 election defeat as a way to uh, shake off the the influence of of Trump, uh, has really uh, bet its whole political future on uh, doubling down on those very elements. Uh, and we see that to some extent in Chicago, too. We have a uh, number of, you know, very unsavory characters like this uh, Chicago uh, police union uh, leader or former leader, John Catanzara, uh, you know, who several uh, weeks, weeks ago uh, predicted that a Johnson victory would bl- bring, quote, blood in the streets, right? Because, you know, Johnson's this radical who's just going to. Uh, produce chaos in the city and there's going to be crime everywhere and uh, more people are going to be dying and so on. Uh, And this is the same guy who, you know, has uh, been very open about his support for Trump and Trumpian politics uh, has casually called for the, uh, for genocide against Muslims, essentially, uh, and some of his other comments. So these were the kinds of people who were supporting Vallis uh, and uh, alongside this, this very, you know, uh, perplexing coalition of, uh, uh, people who are aligned with Trump, uh, and people on the more liberal end of this, the spectrum, you know, we had leading liberal figures from Illinois, like Dick Durbin and Bobby Rush lining up behind Vallis. So it was this, uh, it was this interesting coalition of, uh, Trumpians and, um, Democrats and, and not really necessarily conservative Democrats, uh, but people who have a reputation as being fairly liberal too, also lining up behind ballas. So I think it speaks to the fear within the Democratic Party uh, of a genuine progressive movement from below that's going to transform the party. Uh, so I do think that there's there's a connection to Trumpism, and I, I do think that Trumpism remains very much alive and well. Uh, both nationally and at the local level, even in places like Chicago.
1: So, fear of progressivism. Now, that makes sense when it comes to Dick Durbin siding with Paul Vallis. But at the same time, uh, Paul Vallis was being, as you were pointing out, uh, he was being endorsed by the Fraternal uh, Order of Police uh, head, Canton uh, Zara. And so it just didn't really make sense to me. Why would you want to align yourself with somebody who has been shown to be a very pro Trumpian person? Why do you think the Democratic Party is so afraid? Of the party moving towards a more progressive direction, moving away from their central, uh, you know, centrist uh, neoliberal ways. Is this, was this election, do you think, when it comes to Brandon Johnson's election, is this a marker for the fact that people within the Democratic Party want to move away from privatization and neoliberalism? Uh,
0: certainly there are some in the Democratic Party democratic party who want that but i would say that the dominant current within the party is still very much on board with that pro-corporate pro-privatization pro-police agenda Um, and you know i think unfortunately uh, one of the lessons of the 2016 and 2020 elections nationally was that the leadership of the democratic party would rather see a trump presidency uh, than a bernie sanders presidency Uh, And we see this in the way that the the Democratic Party leadership lined up behind uh, uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Joe Biden in 2020 uh, in order to lock out Sanders from the nomination. Uh, Now, uh, you know, whether Sanders uh, would have beat um, Trump in either of those elections is, you know, of course, unknowable. But from the polling, at least. Uh, it seemed like a Sanders-style progressivism uh, had at least as much chance of beating Trump as either Clinton or Biden did. Uh, but the party leadership was completely unwilling to uh, to allow that prospect of a Sanders candidacy.
1: How much do you think that's simply driven by the way that campaigns are have been funded since 1980, that... At that when there was the shift towards more and more corporate funding of campaigns, is the Democratic Party just being pragmatic that they understand if they have a pro-business agenda and platform, they will get those resources. And if they don't have that pro-business agenda and platform, they won't get those resources and therefore... You know, supposedly, if you have fewer campaign funds, you will lose an election. That didn't happen with Brandon Johnson, but that's the you know proposition. That's this, the thing that everybody assumes is the case. So do you think that that embrace of pro-business, big business politics within the Democratic Party is simply a pragmatic move in order to get the campaign funds they believe they need in order to win an election?
0: I think to some extent it's a pragmatic move, yes, Uh, but it's also reflective of a dominant narrative which is constantly reinforced by the corporate media and by Democratic Party leadership that the Democratic Party needs to move to the right in order to win elections. Uh, And you know, they tried that in 2016, they tried it again in 2020. You know biden barely squeaked out a victory against trump in 2020 uh i think partly due to uh, the intervention of the pandemic and trump's catastrophic handling of it Uh, but that formula of moving to the right in order to win elections uh, historically has a very mixed record Uh, and i think we can point to at least as many cases where that strategy has failed as where it's succeeded Uh, so you know, there is a pragmatic logic behind trying to appeal to uh, corporate executives and investors, um, because those are the people who are going to fund your campaign. Uh, but at the same time, there's also uh, there is a way to, to circumvent that to an extent. And I think Bernie's campaign showed that to some extent, at least that uh, with enough uh, popular appeal and uh, donations from, a, you know, uh, small donors across the, the population, uh, you can actually mount a viable campaign, even in the absence uh, or the, the shortage of those, you know, big corporate uh, campaign donations. Uh, so, you know, I think that the problem of money in politics goes way back. I would even argue it goes way back before 1980 uh, to, you know, the election of 1896, for instance, uh, where there's this big shift toward uh, more and more business funding of, the election cycle. And, you know, it certainly is uh, a, a terrible problem that we need to confront. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that uh, the, the Democratic Party necessarily has to embrace that narrative that it needs to move rightward in order to win. Um, yeah. So
1: why do you think campaign funding isn't an issue anymore? Did, you know, we had the whole controversy and discussion and debate over McCain-Feingold. It gets passed. Doesn't do anything when it, to take out uh, big money out of politics, really. Uh, we have the exact same situation, if not worse, than we did before McCain-Feingold. So why isn't this an issue anymore? Why isn't there more talk about public funding of campaigns? Why is this just not an issue anymore? Is it's simply be, uh, not an issue because both the Democrats and the Republicans, it, this is a bipartisan mission that they do not want to have campaign funding ch- changed in any way.
0: Well, I think that's it. It becomes a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. Uh, there's not much interest in Congress in in public funding of campaigns, for instance, because the people who need to pass, the, who need to vote in favor of that reform, uh, in order for it to become legislation, uh, are are personally opposed to it uh, because they're the ones who benefit from this this system of corporate campaign donations and uh, the the dominance of the rich uh, in our campaign finance system. So uh you know it's i think it is a self-reinforcing cycle it's a it's a very difficult uh dilemma to face uh but the other point i want to add is that there is this narrative of course that the democratic party needs to appease business in order to win elections uh but the major downside to that is that by appeasing businesses you also uh appeasing big big business in particular uh, you also sacrifice your party's ability uh, to deliver reforms that matter to working people, uh, and that's, the, that's the, the major structural dilemma that the, the Democratic Party has faced over the last half century or more is that it's committed at once to serving the interests of business, and it also has these promises which it needs to make in order to win elections about progressive reform. Healthcare reform, expanding healthcare and educational access, uh, uh, the rights of workers—all of these progressive things that are very popular among the population—if you look at public opinion polls—but uh, the Democratic Party, because it is so committed to that other objective of wooing business, cannot then deliver those progressive reforms, and it endangers its own ability to it endangers its own political survival, uh, and uh, you know ultimately it opens the door to demagogues like Donald Trump to come in and say, uh, well, the Democrats haven't done anything for you, Uh, I will. Well, that's a
1: happy thought. So you write that uh, the newly elected uh, Brandon Johnson, the newly elected Chicago mayor, Brandon Johnson, his win not only offers hope for transforming a ruthlessly unequal city, but signals what the left could accomplish elsewhere. For that reason, the election has elicited fear and rage from the lords of the city and trepidation from the national business press. Investors are issuing dire warnings of capital flight, While police officials are predicting an explosion in street crime, as you were talking about earlier. In fact, last weekend, hundreds and hundreds of young people took to downtown streets. And as reported in local media, terrorized residents and tourists alike. In one incident, a mob beat and robbed a couple from Indiana. A bystander who witnessed the attack on the couple tried to stop a passing police car to get help. And the police drove around her without helping the victims as the crime was taking place. So the witness intervened, and as the Indiana couple described it, that witness saved their life. So the Chicago Police Department is now doing an internal investigation into what happened downtown. Many are saying, are wondering if the police reacted the way that they did because of the election of Brandon Johnson. How much influence can the police have on elections and who is in power? Is there any history of police actions trying to influence elections or the electorate for their own political purposes? Because I don't think the public generally thinks of the police as a political force. How, do we, how might we view the police differently if we understand that they actually do have a political agenda?
0: -hmm- uh, Well, first of all, uh, with regard to the election, I do want to give uh, big props to uh, the progressive people of Chicago who made possible the election of Brandon Johnson. This is definitely a, a historic uh, upset. Uh, definitely surprised me and uh, it's it is inspiring to see uh, all of the people who uh, made that election victory possible uh, from, you know, black community groups to labor unions like the Chicago teachers uh, to Puerto Rican community groups that that mobilized Uh, and at a deeper level, the victory was made possible by the the history of Uh, Chicago's own social movements um, outside of the electoral sphere. So I'm thinking especially of the Chicago Teachers Union, from which uh, Brandon Johnson comes. Uh, So uh, I don't want to skim over that point. I don't want to downplay the the accomplishment that the people of Chicago uh, have have delivered. Um, At the same time, I think we do need to talk seriously about the obstacles that Brandon Johnson is going to face from Uh, sectors like big business and from the police, as you mentioned. Uh, Police forces around the United States have a long history of intervening uh, in politics. Uh, But as you say, I think it's it's not widely known, that history is not widely known. Most people tend to think of the police as an apolitical force, Uh, but they are a sector that defends its interests. and to give one example from, uh, I guess, late 2014, early 2015, um, in New York, you had a, a mayor who was elected on a progressive platform, Bill de Blasio. Um, and in late 2014, he had, you know, in the midst of the, the upsurge of uh, Black Lives Matter protests around the country, uh, Bill de Blasio had issued some you know, very mild criticisms of police violence. And those comments then became the basis or the, the, uh, uh, the trigger uh, for a, mass, uh, a massive action by the police force in New York, essentially uh, refusing to arrest people and refusing to write citations, which are a key source of revenue for the city of New York. Uh, and that, that was a de facto strike by the police. Uh, at least a partial strike they were refusing to do many of the things that they typically did Uh, and uh you know there are other examples that we could look at from throughout the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries in the united states of uh, municipal police forces doing similar things in order to achieve political goals uh in this case they they claimed that you know we have this this radical mayor who is anti-police uh and um uh, we are we refuse to abide uh, this this kind of attack on our uh, institution. Um, so, you know, sometimes those kinds of strikes work. Uh, sometimes they don't, and sometimes the result is ambiguous. In the case of the strike against the Blasio by the police in New York, uh, the strike did eventually end after a few weeks. Uh, you know, there wasn't any immediate concession to the police uh, uh, in New York. but. Uh, those kinds of things do influence uh uh, the behavior of politicians over the long term because they don't want to alienate these entrenched institutional interests like the police forces
1: to what extent Well, you write how uh, to to the extent that uh, Johnson and his allies on the city council attempt to deliver, they will incur a phalanx of resistance. Reactionary forces may have lost the election, but they retain enormous power to coerce both policymakers and the general population. So to what extent do and can reactionary forces actually have the power to purposely undermine a government to fulfill their own political agenda? Uh,
0: Well, I think that the corporate elite have a tested playbook that they roll out in these kinds of situations. Um, when they lose an election, when their candidate uh, is defeated as Paul Vallis was, they turn to some of the other strategies, the other levers of power, as I call them, or as many people call them, uh, to uh, try to get what they want, to try to defend their interests. Uh, so they you know, they still uh, can. Um, Exert some influence through other elected officials, other judicial uh, authorities in Chicago and in the state of Illinois to try to block some of uh, the reforms that Brandon Johnson has promised. So you know they do still have allies on City Council. So that's that's one uh, point. of of entry for corporate influence, it will continue to be a a point of entry. Um, But one of the other weapons that they have at their disposal, which I emphasize, is the fact that they control so much of the economy. When we talk about the 1% as a force in the United States, it's it's not just a matter of the concentration of income. It's also the uh, power of decision making, that that control, that concentrated control over wealth confers on the corporate elite and on big event investors. They have the power to make decisions that affect the lives of everybody else in terms of uh, job creation, in terms of loans that are available to uh, uh, consumers, to households, to small businesses, uh, the availability of housing at reasonable prices, You know the, the public transit infrastructure uh, all of these things uh, are, are core decisions that affect our lives, but we typically don't have much say over them. Um, so, what we see the corporate elite typically do in these cases when they lose an election is they, threat to withdra- they, they threaten to withdraw the investments uh, that we all depend upon. So, that's exactly what we're seeing in Chicago uh, over the last few weeks investors saying that, uh, you know, Brandon Johnson is going to be a job killer. Uh, He's going to scare away the investments that Chicago needs. He's going to uh, uh, cause Chicago's credit rating to plummet even further than it already has. And that his election is going to be a disaster for the economy. And this is exactly what we see the corporate elite do in all of these cases where we have a progressive uh, politician elected. If we want to go to other examples around the world, we can look at cases where uh progressives were uh, elected in other countries or leftists even sometimes even revolutionary leftists like salvador allende in chile uh and 1970 when allende was elected uh, nixon richard nixon gave his uh, uh famous order to make the economy scream in chile as a way of punishing chileans for their defiance of the united states punishing them for electing this progressive candidate who wanted to uh, reduce inequality in Chile and bring about a real, uh, genuine democracy. Uh, and the United States and, and corporate leaders proceeded to do just that. They uh, withdrew investments from the economy uh, and um, that, that uh, was one factor, at least, in the destabilization of the economy that facilitated the overthrow of Allende in 1973 by the Chilean military and uh, the uh, the onset of 17 years of the brutal, ruthless military dictatorship. Uh, so that's uh, one um, one foreign example. We also have uh, domestic examples that we can point to. There's, as you've said in the introduction, uh, there's a long history of uh progressive mayors being elected uh, especially if we look at uh, the 1970s 1980s uh in the aftermath of this big upsurge of social movement activity in the United States in the 60s and early 70s one of the uh, political upshots of that was the election of all of these uh progressive black mayors especially uh in some of the major cities in the country Uh, including Chicago with the election of Harold Washington in 1983. Uh, But what the, uh, you know, what what corporate rulers did at the time uh, is essentially what they're doing now is they threatened that, well, Harold Washington is going to destroy the economy. Uh, We're going to have to withdraw our investments from the city because it's just not a competitive business environment. Uh, So there's a, a, a clear parallel here between 1983 and 2023 in Chicago.
1: And you mentioned this tactic of a capital strike. You explained of the right's well-tested playbook, less visible but equally important is the structural leverage that comes from controlling employment, access to loans, and government tax revenues, threats to withdraw those resources. A capital strike can bring significant pressure to bear on reformers. So does capital hold whatever democracy we have here in the United States? Does capital hold democracy hostage? And if it does, what kind of democracy do we have?
0: Yeah, very much so. They, they absolutely hold us hostage. They have a stranglehold on our economy uh, that enables them to make the decisions that affect all of our lives. And so, you know, we, we have a democracy on paper. There's some aspects of our political system that are actually quite democratic. Uh, others not so much. Uh, the Electoral College and the structure of the U.S. Senate, for instance, the way that uh, those uh, institutions uh, overrepresent uh, more uh, conservative and whiter areas of the country, um, but. On paper we do have we do have many of the uh, core aspects of a democracy but in practice that democracy very rarely functions and there have been lots of uh, studies uh, of this phenomenon by political scientists and sociologists where they systematically compare the preferences of the public with the policies that actually come out uh, uh, from the national federal government uh, and they find that there's there's zero statistical correlation between the preferences of the vast majority of the population and the policies that actually are uh, enacted by the government. So there's, there's no, in other words, most people in this country, the bottom 70 or 80% of people in the country have zero real influence over the politics, uh, over the policies of the, of the federal government. Uh, and that's a very striking finding. Uh, and I think it it does reflect that we do have a democracy in name, but uh, it, it doesn't function uh, in any genuine real way. Uh, it only functions to the extent that uh, popular movements force government to take people seriously. That's when uh, the opinions of the public have a chance at actually influencing the actions of the government.
1: And you write that, you know, that's one of the things that is needed right now is more of the militancy from the Chicago Teachers Union organizer, Brandon Johnson, but also from his supporters. It's almost counterintuitive. You would think that now that progressives have a CTU member, a community organizer who is in the mayor's office, that should lead to less actions on the street. Why do you think that we need more militancy now, even as a progressive is in office?
0: Well, here, I think it's helpful to go back again to the election of Harold Washington and other similar mayors in the 70s and 80s. So Harold Washington was elected in 1983 in a situation that was in some ways very similar to Brandon Johnson's. Uh, Harold Washington uh, confronted the Democratic machine in Chicago. He was elected in an upset against opponents who vastly outspent him, just as Brandon Johnson was. Um, And he was opposed by many of the Democratic power players in the city. Um, When he got into office, however, uh, what we see is that uh, most of his campaign promises were abandoned. Most of the progressive promises he had made on the campaign trail did not come to fruition. And on the contrary, what Washington did was Basically, bend over backwards to try to court the goodwill of corporations. So, he established an economic development task force that was primarily staffed by corporate uh, titans, uh, business people, uh, and um, adopted policies uh, that uh, systematically favored businesses. Businesses said, in order to to come to Chicago or to stay in Chicago, we need X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z typically entailed lavish tax breaks and subsidies for business, uh, including big businesses, Um, and also the suppression of workers' rights, which is another thing that uh, Harold Washington had campaigned on. But when he gets into office in 83, uh, he, he very quickly goes back on that promise. He actually tried to outlaw Strikes by municipal workers. He failed to support uh, striking workers in several uh, uh, big cases of of labor strikes in the city and near the city. Uh, He failed to speak out on behalf of labor. Um, So we can take some lessons from the Washington administration because that was a very that that election and the movement behind Washington was very much electorally focused. It was focused on electing Washington himself, and then uh, re-electing him uh, when his term was over. Uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, non-electoral uh, mass militancy and disruption during his tenure in office, uh, and at least Harold Washington himself did not promote that kind of uh, social movement mobilization and organizing outside of the electoral arena. Uh, So the big takeaway from Washington's administration that that I would uh, suggest is that the left and progressive forces, uh, after the election of a progressive mayor, need to uh, really kick it into high gear uh not let down our guard and say uh well our guy is now in office we can sit back and wait for him to deliver uh because historically that assumption has has proven a dismal failure uh so uh to the extent that that Washington does try to deliver on those progressive promises like you said he's gonna he's gonna meet with uh uh, extreme resistance from Chicago's traditional rulers and that's exactly why continued mobilization, deepened mobilization and organization and uh, and uh, social movement uh, disruption really uh, are going to be so important because in the absence of that, Brandon Johnson is going to is going to face the same temptations that Harold Washington faced, which is to uh, accommodate the, the wishes of business, Um, and to basically become an administrator of capitalism in the city rather than a real genuine reformer. So it's gonna take the continued organizing and mobilizing of Chicago's left, uh, including labor unions like CTU and other community organizations and labor organizations, uh, not just to hold Johnson accountable, uh, because it's not so much about Johnson's personal uh, politics, or or his you know strength or weakness or corruption or lack thereof. It's more about the structural forces and pressures that that uh, these traditional power interests in Chicago, like the police and like business, are going to bring to bear on on Johnson. And then in, in the absence of that independent uh, movement pressure, um, he's he's going to face tremendous temptation to uh, to bow to. Uh, what those uh, those right-wing forces are demanding of him.
1: But you also point out how there has been growing militancy here in Chicago politics since 2020- 2010. Uh, partly with the Chicago Teachers' Union, but in other aspects as well. Yet you write that certainly the reformers were victims of bad timing. By the late 1970s, employers and finance capitalists had launched an all-out war on labor rights and social welfare. That war has continued with only minor abatements down to the present. And you add that the failure was partly within the left's power to control. In the 1970s, many progressive organizations shifted away from the boycotts, sit-ins, and other tactics that had won real reforms in the 1960s. Do you think, unlike Washington, unlike the 1970s, what we'll be seeing now in 2023 is more of an embrace of the tactics that have been successful with the Chicago Tenants Union, that have been successful with organizations like Black Lives Matter, that that confrontational, direct protest do you think that with that history that current history right now that that will be embraced and not shunned not shifted away from as it was done in the 1970s
0: well i certainly hope so and i think there are some promising signs Uh, the chicago teachers union model is very inspiring it has been for uh, the last 13 years 2010 when this uh, reform uh, caucus within the CTU took power, that they were elected for the first time in 2010. And uh, in 2012, they launched this historic strike uh, against the, the neoliberal mayor at the time, Rahm Emanuel, uh, and they, they win some significant gains. And they really showed the rest of us just how much can be done uh, when you do engage in real organizing organizing, not just in the interest of getting someone elected or getting a certain bill passed, but actually organizing people to take action uh, where they work and where they live, uh, which is what labor organizing is all about, or what it should be about is not, not just uh, winning an election or getting a piece of legislation passed, uh, but actually using the power that we as workers and consumers uh, have to Impose disruption on our opponents. In this case, is the, the employers or uh, the investing class, and so on. Uh, so, the CTU model uh, marks a big shift from some of what we saw in the 70s and 80s, where the movements that came out of the 60s had shifted into this more electoral emphasis uh which didn't yield a lot in terms of results Uh, but ctu i think that organizers in ctu are very much aware of the fact that they can't depend on elections and legislative lobbying to get what they want Um, electoral campaigns are one part of what the ctu does in the last several years ctu has indeed uh, poured some of its resources and some of its time and energy into elections and they were an important. Uh, constituency for uh for Brandon Johnson an important reason why he got elected um but on a deeper level uh the election of Johnson would not have been possible without that prior non-electoral organizing work by the CTU and similar progressive forces in Chicago and that prior organizing was generally not electoral in nature so the CTU has built a movement that that Has uh, uh, has some uh, uh, has one foot in the electoral arena, so to speak, uh, but that has a a strong foundation of organizing and direct action uh, by people where they work and where they live, Uh, and that's the the I would argue that that's the essential key to to their success. Uh, You can build um, an electoral movement on the foundation of that non-electoral movement. Uh, but it's very hard to do the reverse. Uh, and when I say that, and I'm actually paraphrasing from an article, uh, classic 1985 article uh, by a historian uh, named Robert Brenner, uh, which I re- really recommend to people. It's called The Paradox of Social Democracy. And he goes into a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about. Uh, if you search his name, Brenner, and The Paradox of Social Democracy, you can find it online. It's a very insightful essay. Uh, and he argued, and I think this is true, that uh, a social movement that uh, is based on organizing people and based on direct action in defense of people's interests uh, can uh, can, uh, develop uh, an electoral arm or it can be, uh, it can translate into some gains in in the electoral arena and in legislation. Uh, But it's very hard to conjure a real social movement out of simply an election. and uh, that's a long-winded way of saying that i think that there are some very positive uh, signs in chicago in this model that the ctu and its allies across the city have developed which is not exclusively focused on elections and it's also good to see some of the uh, things that johnson has done since he was elected uh earlier this month you know attending the picket lines, uh, Chicago State University, walking the picket lines with the workers, you know, that's that's a very hopeful sign um, of of what uh, could be in store. Uh, And it is it's something that sets him apart from Harold Washington in 1983. Washington really didn't have that deep organic connection to popular movements that Brandon Johnson has. So that's one aspect of the current situation that makes me hopeful.
1: You write that without more effort at wooing businessmen, CEOs believe that Harold Washington would scare away investors, and they were telling everybody that at the time. And you add that one CEO predicted he'll come around because business and government must work together. Back in November of last year, we spoke with uh, historian Austin McCoy, who wrote the Baffler magazine article after Floyd. If you can't rein in the police, you can't save democracy. In that article, Austin writes, the alliance of local government and the police is unassailable, which is a quote that we have cited many times since his appearance on our show. In your opinion, is the alliance of local government and the police unassailable? And is that because the government's relationship with business is is unassailable is the police business government relationship one that cannot be attacked questioned or defeated and if so what effect does that have on democracy
0: well it's definitely a real alliance and it's it's definitely a tall order uh, to attack it and undermine it uh but i think that it can be it can be challenged and uh, if we could go back to the 60s for a moment, there were some, some real uh, uh, episodes in the 1960s when movements in the United States, especially the black movement, uh, did succeed in doing that. And they did win some real reforms, You know, not necessarily the revolution that many people wanted, uh, but they did win some real reforms, including to the actions of the police. So uh, if we go to Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, uh, the dominant narrative about how the Birmingham protesters won is essentially that uh, they, they demonstrated through the, the moral force of their nonviolent example uh, that uh, they were in the right, that history was on their side, and uh, eventually uh, these northern white liberals who saw the images of the dogs and fire hoses on TV uh, came to sympathize with the protesters in Birmingham, and they then pressured the, the Kennedy administration uh, to intervene on behalf of the movement. And uh, for me, that has, also, that has always been a very misleading narrative of how the movement actually succeeded. I think the movement succeeded uh, uh, in large part, um, primarily even, uh, because of its ability to impose disruption on Birmingham's business elite. Uh, And this isn't something that uh, most narratives about Birmingham actually focus on, but uh, the role of boycotts of the downtown merchant in Birmingham was central to the the movement's victory in 1963. Uh, There was a uh, a boycott that lasted uh, over a month. It it cost the Birmingham merchants and retailers uh, millions of dollars, and eventually realizing that uh, that uh movement was not going away it couldn't just be repressed out of existence it was the retailers and the real estate interests and other uh uh, other sectors within Birmingham's own business elite uh, that then went to the political elite in Birmingham including the city government and including the police and said you need to change we need to integrate or else this disruption is going to continue So the movement succeeded by forcing the business elite to bear the costs of the continued disruption. And I think that that episode of Birmingham holds a very powerful lesson for those of us today about the ways that we can potentially split the business elite from the political elite or the business elite from the police. Uh, if, it's, uh, if it becomes apparent to uh, uh, business executives in the United States that their interests are going to be harmed by continued police violence and uh, uh, abuse of, uh, of Black people and, and also other working class people, uh, then uh, the business elite will then uh, uh go to the the police and and the the city politicians and so on and um essentially lobby for a change that will uh that will end that disruption and they'll essentially lobby for government to concede to what the movement is demanding so You know, I I think it is very hard to challenge uh, the power of the police, but there are ways it can be done. And the 1960s um, offer us some important lessons for that.
1: You also point out that the Johnson administration, quote, must split small capital from big capital. How can small capital be split from big capital and why is small capital any better than big capital?
0: Well, that's a good question yeah i mean small small business owners uh are often uh held up as you know moral examples uh but you know they do lots of bad things too they also exploit their workers um so you know i i don't think it makes sense to to see them as heroes but at the same time in terms of a short-term reform agenda it's hard for an elected reformer to simultaneously confront all of the business world Uh, And I think it makes sense for Johnson to start by attacking some of the big capitalists uh, in particular sectors like real estate, uh, like the hotel industry, like the airlines. And all of those three sectors have actually been the focus of some of Jackson's uh, or Johnson's rather uh, uh, tax reform proposals. Uh, So he's proposing to raise taxes on those particular sectors uh in order to fund some of the the uh, job creation and social programs that he's been uh promising um so i think that as a short-term political strategy that does make sense uh but we do need to keep in mind as you imply that you know small business owners uh, uh small businesses are, are no panacea right they're uh, they also operate undemocratically. They're not controlled by their workers. They're not uh, accountable to the people who are affected by their actions. Um, but in the short term, it's it's hard to take on the entire bu- bu- uh, business establishment. You also write that
1: Mayor Harold Washington was not overthrown or recalled. He died of a heart attack after being reelected in 1987. But he did come around to many of businesses' demands. His economic development task force was dominated by corporate executives, albeit a multiracial group of them, reflecting the assumption that economic development was only possible if Chicago did more to woo businessmen. So to what degree is a lack of economic development the fault of big business, not the government? Is it an issue that is caused by a situation that's caused by business and corporate interests and not by the government?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it comes back to the issue that we we talked about at the beginning, which is about democracy, right, democracy is not just the level of government it's also at the level of the economy. Uh, Democracy for me means that uh, we have control over the decisions that affect our lives and many of those decisions are in the economic realm, Uh, so when it comes to um, decisions about uh, what kinds of jobs are available. Uh, are loans available to people on the, and on what terms? Is affordable, uh, safe public housing available to people? Uh, is, is quality public education available to us? You know, all of those decisions are primarily made in the, in the economic realm by our society's economic power holders. And they're only marginally subject to influence by, uh, by politicians. Um, so uh, this is a problem of, of democracy uh, um, control over the economy, and uh, Johnson uh, is certainly going to uh, uh, have to confront that question if he's if he's serious about reform.
1: One last question for you, Kevin. We've been speaking with historian Kevin A. Young, who wrote the Jacobin article. Brandon Johnson won in Chicago. Now his movement will have to beat. Capital Strikes. He is also he's going to be the author of a new book next month, next year called Abolishing Fossil Fuels, Lessons from Movements That Won. And I hope you'll be back on our show so we can discuss that when your book is published. One last question for you, though, Kevin. And I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is called The Question from Hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is just going to hate your response. Are <laughs> Capital Strikes, are they class war is capital engaging in a class war and in the US today is capital more powerful than democracy how much can democracy even fight back against capital considering the amount of power that our democracy has given capital or that the amount of democracy that capital has taken away from us
0: yeah, it, it's absolutely class war. And it's not just people on the left that are saying that if you look at the pages of the business press, uh, it's often recognized pretty candidly, you know, they they are very clear about their interests, uh, and uh, the the effort to advance their interests at the expense of others. Um, so you know, the politicians don't like to come out and say it openly in businesses and their, you know, uh, public press releases and statements. They don't so, say it openly, but if you look a little deeper at the the things that, you know, the business magazines and the literature that they themselves are, are sharing uh, in their own circles, uh, they tend to be more candid about it. Uh, so it absolutely is class war. Uh, it takes place you know at every level from the local to the national to the global uh, we see it very clearly in uh, essentially every aspect of government policy making uh, from the pandemic response uh, to uh, battles over the rights of workers um, the level of say unemployment benefits or food stamps um, the uh, debate over you know what to do about inflation uh, the <laughs> Uh, the primary policy response uh, to inflation over the last several years has been to raise interest rates uh, which has the effect of slowing down the economy uh, and uh, putting workers at more of a disadvantage Uh, that's not the only uh, possible response to uh, an inflationary problem there are other things that the government could be doing uh, that don't involve uh, suppressing workers rights and workers leverage um, but the dominant policy response has been to, again, raise interest rates. And that's one manifestation of many that we could point to of this very concerted class war that has has been going on uh, on the part of the business class against the rest of us. Now, uh, I don't think that it's totally hopeless. Um, and we need to, at moments like this, we need to look back at the history of uh, some of uh, our our successful social movements in the 1960s, the 1930s. We could go back much further. We could look at you know, the abolition of slavery in the United States. Uh, and that's just within the United States context. We need to take inspiration and lessons from some of those earlier social movements that did confront uh, seemingly unsurmountable, insurmountable odds. Uh, and they did overcome those odds. Um, and in many regards, the situation that they faced was at least as difficult as the one that we face today. So we need to maintain a little bit of historical perspective here and realize that we are not the only generation that has confronted some of these uh, some of these problems of business uh, power and control over society or the power of the police, for instance. Uh, so uh, uh, developing the right strategies for taking on those uh, powerful interests, Um, depends in part on, on how we read history and the lessons that we take from the history of some of those past movements.
1: We have been speaking with historian Kevin A. Young, who wrote the Jacobin article, Brandon Johnson won in Chicago. Now his movement will have to beat capital strikes. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being on the show. And we're looking forward to your book that's coming out next year, Abolishing Fossil Fuels, Lessons from Movements That Won. And we hope you'll be back on our show to discuss it.
0: Thanks, Chuck. Take
1: care, Kevin. Thank you very much.
0: You are here, and this is hell.
1: Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. If what you just heard from Kevin Young about the fight with capital and the fight with cops that Brandon Johnson will face when he takes office... If that made you realize that yes, this really is hell Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon podcast Which this week's streams We're going to try to make it so it is posted at 420 today On 420 I'm going to see if we can... Time that posting that way I think we can schedule a Patreon post We're going to see if we can do that today And I'll tell you why in just a moment uh, And uh, Or you can show your support For completely listener-supported This Is Hell By visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support Again, you can subscribe at patreon.com Slash thisishell uh, Or you can just go to thisishell.com And click on support This week on Patreon Today is April 20th And as every card-carrying stoner knows And by the way quit carrying those cards. They kind of make it seem like you're probably committing a crime. April 20th is a very special day. A day when self-proclaimed marijuana fans celebrate cannabis, aka weed, pot, reefer, grass, dope, ganja, Mary Jane, herb, Aunt Mary, skunk, boom, the chronic, chiba, baby bang, bammy, bobo, broccoli, and not the other kind. Daiga, Dinky Dow, Ding, Donawanna, Flower, Gasper, Giggle Smoke, Good Butt, Joystick, or Jolly Green. We'll take a look at the history of 420 legalization in the current corporatized state of weed, and we'll even touch on whether your bitter, blind, broke, cap tooth radio show host, That's Me, is suffering from cannabis use disorder. Also on Patreon, we are going to be sharing a classic interview about marijuana being illegal prior to its legalization in many states here in the United States from back in the 2000s. I think we might be playing the one, I'm not too sure yet. Uh, from December 23rd, 2006, when we talked to John Getman, a marijuana reform activist and leader for the Coalition of Rescheduling Cannabis. He had just written a report called Marijuana Production in the United States, reports, uh, in, which reported that cannabis is America's number one cash crop back in 2006, not, not 2008, 2006, a $35 billion a year business in the United States in 2006 putting it ahead of staples like corn and soybeans, which probably explains the legalization and not decriminalization of weed, because corporations saw that $35 billion sitting out there and it wasn't in their pockets, so they wanted to make sure they could legalize it and get that money from legacy, small legacy growers, long-time growers, and put it in their own corporate pockets, and whatever's going to happen to weed after that, it's kind of been a mess so far. But the only way you can Find out if I'm addicted to Alice B. Toklas, The Dank, God's Herb, Green Goddess, Holy Weed, Sin Spinach, Zoot, and follow that up with a conversation about Sticky Icky, Pretendo, Greta, Jan's Lettuce, KGB, Muggle, and my personal favorite slang word for weed, Nixon is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell. if you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon uh, not only do you get a special code word giving you a $5 discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support but you will also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me in a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. That's patreon.com slash Hell. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and share with us any more answers that we get from you know people, assuming they are not some kind of
2: AI. Uh, this week's question from hell is: Where are you conducting your secret war? Uh, we have a few responses All recently. Right. Um, Carlos C says, "In a porta potty on the last day of Lollapalooza." That's just disgusting. Oh, gross, <laughs> Carlos. <laughs> no. uh, Melanie C. I love the
1: names for porta potty companies. My favorite one right now is
2: Leprecan. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good I've one. always been partial to Wee Wee. <laughs> I've seen that one too. That's a good one. Uh, Melanie C K says, "In space between having empathy, in the space between having empathy for others, knowing they're doing the best they can, and not giving an F because they are still terrible piece of s." <laughs> All right, then, All Melanie. Right. Well, wow. <laughs> a little edgy this morning. Yeah. All right. Uh, Kim G says, trying to keep my houseplants alive without a green thumb. (laughs) It's always difficult. Rusty C says, your mom's panty drawer. (laughs) Good God. Busting out one of the grossest Uh, words in the English language. Oh, Oh, dude. Um, Jesse N says, Christmas Island. And have got a problem with Christmas Island (laughs) for it. Yeah, I don't. I have so many questions. I don't know either. Um, if it was the place of uh, lost toys from uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, oh, that I understand. I never even thought of that angle. And <laughs> um, We have a couple on Patreon. All right. Uh, L.O. Ryan says, oh, this is a long one. Well, you go straight on Magnolia, then you take a left on Jefferson, and it's the first gate on your, hey, wait a stinking minute. You're a effing blank agent. I knew it. So, yeah, that's the first gate. On your right apartment 3B, <laughs> knock before kicking in the door, please. take off your shoes. Thanks bye <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> And then Papa Foxtrot says in my Excel spreadsheets, one cell at a
1: time. Oh very clever one cell terror cell at <laughs> bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996 this is hell. you can still, still leave your answer to this week's question hell on our Facebook page. Uh, on discord at patreon you can tweet it to us you can email it to us but we got to have your answer as soon as possible because right now we are going to be doing uh, we have the great honor of the segment the seb vupper host which is called the past inside the present and i believe sebastian is ready so take it away sebastian
3: the past inside the present Soviet weeks are over, since last time you heard from me, we dissolved the Soviet Union uh, like a snail in salt, as piece by piece, its member states peacefully, um, peace by piece, peacefully, well, I should have read this out loud before it, before going on here, uh, uh, peacefully declared independence. Russia and Ukraine were the last states to leave and effectively declared the USSR disbanded in December of 1991. Most people stopped paying attention to Russian history at this point. The Cold War was over. The good guys won. Yay! Everyone was happy history had ended. Only that none of this is quite true. Yes, with the end of the USSR, the United States remained as the last standing superpower in the world. The Cold War, it seemed, had been won. Russia and pretty much all of the former communist countries were now transforming into free market democracies, which sounded great on paper. History, according to political scientist Francis Fukuyama, was also over capitalism now ruled supreme and unopposed in the world, which, uh, yeah, which turned out to be a complete and utter horror show, and not in the Russian a horror show good kind, and that's a joke that only works if you either know Russian or are familiar with Clockwork Orange. Uh, the Soviet economy had been a command economy controlled by the state, And this system now had to transform and reform itself overnight into free market capitalism. Uh, The Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, decreed this change, circumventing leftover parliamentary controls that had still uh, been elected during Soviet times. So the parliament had still been elected during Soviet times, and now he was basically overruling them. Uh, These rapid changes had devastating effects on the Russian economy the ruble was hit with the runaway hyperinflation most of russian uh, uh, russians businesses collapsed uh the price controls were lifted abruptly further exacerbating the effects of hyperinflation and most russian uh, most ordinary russians had their life savings completely wiped out overnight this program was aptly called shock therapy a part of this program was the rapid privatization of formerly state-owned businesses And this was done through what's called voucher privatization. Uh, This meant that every Russian citizen received a number of vouchers which could be exchanged for shares in these businesses. However, the population was partially extremely badly informed about the details of this deal and also the runaway hyperinflation just devalued money. And so uh, and and, and also uh, businesses were increasingly incapable of just paying their workers in currency, uh, so they just paid their workers in uh, whatever they were producing and other factors um, added to uh, most Russians selling off their vouchers often far beneath their value, and those who bought them at vast numbers, most of them were managers of the former state-owned companies, quickly amassed majority shares in the Russian economy at a ludicrously low price. Meanwhile, Russian citizens were often simply paid, as I said, in the goods that the companies they worked at produced, which meant they had to try and sell these goods themselves in order to have money on hand. The small group of businessmen who amassed between them most of the Russian economy uh, through the massive buy-up of vouchers later became known as the Russian oligarchs. You might have heard of them. And they arguably still today hold most of the power in Russia. Ending the Soviet system had other wide-ranging detrimental effects on the Russian economy. During the late stages of the Soviet Union, about a quarter of the country's GDP went into the defense sector, which employed about one in every five citizens. With the end of the Cold War, this oversized defense sector was no longer needed, putting millions out of work. And what again exacerbated this situation was that the USSR's planned economy had also resulted in cities and entire regions at times, focusing on very small numbers of industry. Um, Fun fact, this is also to some degree true in China today. In some places, a single industry employed everyone, meaning that when uh, now some of these individual sectors failed, entire regional economies collapsed around them. The economic output of the country dropped. Uh, by 50% in the early 90s. And then, adding to all of this, in the fall of 1993, Russia also faced a massive political crisis. President Yeltsin had been pursuing a radical political reform course to turn Russia into a parliamentary free market democracy, but the country's government, as I uh, mentioned earlier, was still made up of institutions from the Soviet Union, like the Congress of People's Deputies and the Supreme Soviet, effectively constituting the parliament of Russia. In October 1993, Yeltsin declared both bodies dissolved, even though technically his office as of the president lacked the power to do so. The parliament then impeached Yeltsin and declared Vice President Alexander Rutskoy acting president. And now I've said president a few too many times, so let's talk about the people. Uh, the Russian people were quite upset by all of this and generally sided with the parliamentary institutions over Yeltsin, who the masses largely blamed for the horrible state of the con- uh, that the country was now in. Massive protests erupted across Russia. In Moscow, protesters joined Parliament in solidarity. The Congress of People's Deputies announced that they would hold simultaneous, simultaneous presidential and parliamentary elections in March of 1994. Yeltsin's reaction was to shut up electricity, hot water, and the phone lines at the parliamentary building in Moscow uh, called the White House, (laughs) because why not make this more confusing? Uh, The parliamentary building was now being barricaded with nationalist militias from across the country flocking to it, defending the governing bodies from Yeltsin's special police. In this situation, increasingly spiraled out of control. Militias and police began shooting at each other. In the early days of October 1993, Yeltsin then declared a national state of emergency. On October 4, Russian army tanks opened fire on the White House, not that White House, the other, like the Russian White House, with infantrymen storming the building. Protests in the streets were heavily suppressed. The military had long deliberated who they would ultimately back in the standoff and only at the last minute agreed to maintain support of Yeltsin, the president. What followed was a a consolidation of power in the office of the Russian president. In December of 1993, Yeltsin held a referendum on a new Russian constitution that effectively consolidated his power over the government. The parliamentary leaders were trialed and imprisoned. Dissenting political organizations, both nationalists and leftists, were outlawed. 147 people had been killed in the standoff, which made it the bloodiest individual event of street fighting in Moscow's, in Moscow's history since the 1917 October Revolution. At the same time, trouble was brewing in the Russian Caucasus Republic of Chechnya. The Chechens uh, wanted to become an independent country and break away from Russia. And now this again might seem confusing since the Soviet Union had been dissolved and all member states had become independent. However, Russia itself had always been a federative state with its own distinct member republics. So yes, in many ways, the USSR behaved like a Russian nesting doll. Uh, But I digress. Yeltsin decided that the Chechens should not be allowed to do this. And also, since his position as president wasn't terribly secure, he thought that an easily won police action would bolster his poll numbers and increase popularity with his people. However, he massively underestimated the fighting spirit of the Chechens. And if this sounds familiar, remember, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. After bombing the living hell out of the Chechen capital of Grozny, uh, the Chechens refused to seize their resistance to Russia. In December of 1994, uh, the Russian military then invaded Chechnya and began to besiege the capital. Many of the Russian generals resigned in protest over having to wage war against what they saw as their own people. And also the Chechens, while heavily beset by numerically and technologically superior Russian forces, continued to kick the Russians' asses. As in, they brought donkeys and they got kicked, poor donkeys. Um, the war proved to be a disaster for Yeltsin. It lasted for two years between 1994 and 1996 and only resulted in a humiliating stalemate with a peace treaty between the Russian Federation and Chechnya signed in 1997 that essentially only brought back the status quo of before the war. Yeltsin then decided to run for a second term uh, in 1996, in spite of dwindling popularity and worsening personal health. He was backed in this decision by most Western countries, including the United States, France and Germany. And although he was massively unpopular at the outset of his campaign, his international team of political advisors managed to actually get him re-elected. And, but Russia was still in complete shambles economically. Corruption was widespread, and as was general dissatisfaction with the way that the country was run. In many ways, things had just gotten worse from uh, in comparison with uh, where the country was during the last legs of the Soviet Union. In 1998, in 1998 Russia had to default on its debts, causing yet another mass, massive financial crisis and another crash of the ruble. In August of 1999, Yeltsin then dismissed his entire cabinet as well as his prime minister. And as replacement prime minister, and on behest of his oligarch advisors and sponsors, uh, he chose a little-known bureaucrat who had made a career as a KGB agent during the Cold War. A man you may have heard of, who went by the name of uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Yeltsin officially also announced that he wished Putin to be his successor as president should the time come. But Yeltsin's star had been in steady decline. He clearly proved unable to rein in the various problems that Russia was saddled with. Uh, Also, he increasingly found himself lacking the political power to do anything about these things. He also made an increasing amount of appearances in public where he seemed to be quite heavily drunk. In 1998, 1998 then, a corruption scandal... Uh, began uh, (laughs) uh, unwinding, which finally kneecapped the beset Russian president when it came out that he had received massive bribes by the Swiss Mavatex Construction Corporation in exchange for lucrative contracts in remodeling important state infrastructure. After holding on for another year, Yeltsin resigned in disgrace on December 31st, 1999. His successor was, as he had wished, wished for, Vladimir Putin. When Yeltsin left office, his, approving, his approval ratings hovered around 2%. It was under Putin that the Russian economy finally recovered, reaching the 1991 levels of per capita GDP only again somewhere in the mid-2000s. And given the way that post-Soviet history of Russia played out, it is not surprising that the Russians today look at democracy and free market capitalism with a lot of suspicion. Mikhail Gorbachev, who in the aftermath of the dissolution of the Soviet Union was regarded as a heroic figure, died forgotten and largely shunned by the Russian people. Uh, basically, when was that? Last year? The year before? Uh times weird these days. Uh, He had in their view, in the view of the Russian people, not ushered in an era of liberty and prosperity, as uh, the fall of the Soviet Union is often sold in the West, but had diminished Russia's standing in the world and brought nothing but chaos and suffering to its people. One of the reasons that Putin enjoyed such high levels of popularity, and I'm using the past tense here since the Ukraine Ukraine war can't have helped him there, uh, was that his reign saw Russia emerge from the utter chaos of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he has now been in power for for over 23 years, Uh, but not unlike Yeltsin before him, allowed himself to vastly underestimate the fighting spirit of a former subject nation of the Russian Empire. And as I said, history rhymes. And this concludes Russian Weeks. If you want to learn more about this, uh, the easiest way is probably to look up some of Adam Curtis's excellent documentary films on the topic. They're all on YouTube. Um, One is called Hypernormalization, and another one is called Trauma Zone, Russia, 1985 to 1999, specifically. And of course, you should read Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, which brilliantly illuminates the way Western consultants set the course of post-Soviet Russia into the corrupt healthscape that the country
1: devolved into. And that's it from me for today. Fantastic. Hey, two things I wanted to mention to you because I know that you are in the Grand Rapids area and I know that you oddly enjoy beer, somebody who has uh, who's German who enjoys beer, which is very very rare. You don't find that very often. Uh, yes. Have you have you had the opportunity to try anything from Oddside Ales or Short's Brewing? Uh
3: Short's Brewing is is a favorite. Yeah, Short's Brewing has has a lot of good stuff. Um Oddside Ales um don't think so, but yeah. I'll keep an eye out.
1: Yeah, I think that they're from that area. They make absolutely fantastic beer. I love Short's Brewing. Their uh, Humalupa is absolutely fantastic. They make a lot of really good beers, and they try a lot of experimental stuff that doesn't mm. necessarily work. But I just appreciate it. Anyway,
3: yeah, they have one of the they have one of the best. Like currently, I have some of their brown ale, and it's just one of the best brown ales I ever I ever had. So that's... the Bel Air Brown, right? Yeah, I think I think that's where it's called.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Why do I know so much about beer, Sebastian? <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you next week. All right, live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is Hell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and do we have any more responses?
2: This week's question from Hell is: Where are you conducting your secret war? Uh, we have one more that came in under the wire. Sweet, Isel S says: My face against pollen. I'm losing. <laughs> wow. The answers I liked the most were Bradley
1: R saying, "My secret war is being conducted on the in the on the uh, John F Kennedy conference room," which I didn't know what that was, and then I looked it up. It's the Situation Room. It's oh. where, where they actually conduct wars. So I didn't know that. I say I know, right? Yeah, John makes... F Kennedy named were they named after him. I mean, Cuban Missile Crisis.
2: That uh, makes God. sense.
1: Uh, Braden S saying the opinion column of the New York Times. Uh, Cody K saying family reunions. <laughs> Tyler R saying my liver. Little drippy dentist. I like how uh, it's little drippy DDS. Yeah. Is and it so, ri- no, that's what Richard thought it was. <laughs> and I, I want to stick with little drippy dentist. A kinetic black mold con- conflict behind my toilet. <laughs>
2: yes.
1: Or Papa Foxtrot saying in my Excel spreadsheets, one cell at a time. Horrible pun, but it's a good answer. I think the best one is Little Drippy Dennis, don't you?
2: Yeah, I would have to agree. That jumped out at me.
1: Yeah, a kinetic black mold conflict behind my toilet. You are the winner. Uh, assuming that you are a dentist, and we will uh, contact you shortly. You can send us your email, or your mailing address, and we'll send you whatever piece of This Is How merchandise you want in the mail as soon as we can. Congratulations. Uh, my answer to this week's question from hell, where are you conducting your secret war? Uh, I'm conducting my secret war in the bathroom, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Will, who do we have scheduled to be on next week's show?
2: Next week, we uh, have Alyssa Court. Uh, Author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Alyssa is the Executive Director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And then we have Simon Waxman, who wrote the Baffler article, Worst Laid Plans, Foreign Policy is Politics. Simon has written for the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Los Angeles Review of Books, Democracy Journal, and others. And then we have Quinn Slobodian, the author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Quinn is the award-winning author of Globalists, The End of Empire, and the Birth of Neoliberalism, which has been translated into six languages. He is Professor of History of Ideas at Wellesley College and lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: A huge thank you to this week's producers, Will Ippen and Dan Hill. Thanks to Dan Kugler for sitting in this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. To Ronaldo Begaldi for this week in Rotten History. Sebastian Voper for the past inside the present. And to Alexander Jerry and Theron Humiston for everything they do for the show. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell. When it's all about, actually not tomorrow, later on today, this is going to be happening later today. It's all about 420 because it's 420. So today, April 20th, you can hear the Patreon podcast at 420 Chicago time. Tune in, patreon.com slash hell. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on the that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's
2: stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh.
3: And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.